All right, you can turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23, there's a study guide. It says Acts 23, 12 through 35 at the top. If you don't have one, then you can throw a hand up. Anybody not have one of those study guides? Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, we come to your word now and we want, we want to be bowed down before you. So we come humbly. We come to submit to you and all that you reveal here in the scriptures. Lord, we want, to, we want you to reign and you do, God. You reign over us as Lord of all. Lord, we want that to be more and more evident in our lives. That you are our Lord. That you're our King. That we submit to you. Lord Jesus, we love you. And we praise you, Lord, for all that you have done. And God, we praise you for this book. God, as we see the mission that you put us on... Throughout the book of Acts, Lord, you've been, you've been moving us, God, and growing us that we might be fishers of men, disciple makers, that we might be concerned about the advancement of your kingdom, Lord, and we, and God, we long that you would stir us up even more so. And Lord, as we look at this passage today, teach us, God, to stand on your promises, to grab hold of your promises and to stand on them, filled with faith. Teach us that this morning. Lord, help me to teach your word and the ability that you supply. And I pray that you would help every person here to hear your word. Like those Bereans, with an eagerness to hear with a heart leaned in. God, help us to incline our ears to hear this morning. Lord, thank you so much for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Acts chapter 23 should be there in your Bible. We're going to be at verse 12 through 35 this morning. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute before we read this passage. In Acts 23, or actually, the, uh, as we think about the book of Acts as a whole, this has been a fast-paced book, right? So if you think about this book, uh, it's, it's telling us about something going on. It's moving on to the next thing. A large uh, periods of time are taken up in just a couple paragraphs here and there. So a lot of time is taken through the book of Acts. It's a fast-paced book. But what happens is the book of Acts slows down significantly in Acts 21 through 24. It really Acts 21 through the end of the book. And so in Acts 21 through 24, we've got less than two weeks that are zoned into in Paul's life. Less than two weeks are zoned in here into Paul's life in Acts 21 through 24. Now last week Dustin talked to us some about why why that's the case. 
Uh, this, this, uh, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are written to a Theophilus who is a Gentile ruler. And so what we're beginning to see here is a defense of the gospel. And in the defense of the gospel, we have a defense of one of the main proponents of the gospel to the Gentiles, a defense of the Apostle Paul. So that's what we see from Acts 21 on are these over and over again. We see these apologias or these uh, defenses that are made all the way to the end of the book of Acts. And, and we see a lot of detail in Acts 21 through 24 on this two weeks. And we'll see that again as we keep going through the book of Acts. Now, we're starting today in Acts 23, 12. And that's right in the middle of that two week time period that we're zoned in on. So what's led up to this point? So remind yourself with me, let's, let's remind ourselves together what has happened up to this point and what we're about to read in just a moment. This has possibly been one of the absolute worst weeks of Paul's life. One of the worst weeks of his life. Think about that for a minute. He has felt abandoned by the church that he loves, the church of Jerusalem that he loves. He's felt abandoned by them. You know, that's painful. When other Christians, when your church, your brothers and sisters in Christ, and it feels like they have abandoned you. He's felt that this week. He's definitely been abandoned or betrayed by his nation. And we know from Romans 9 and Romans 10 that he loves his nation. He loves the people of Israel, but yet he's been betrayed by them, hated by them. He's been slandered. He's been falsely accused. They're putting things on his character, on his, on his name that he has not done. This man this week has been beaten almost to death. Beaten to a place where he could not walk up a set of stairs. He was just on the verge of being flogged by the Roman tri tribune and, and his, uh, his soldiers there. So he's almost flogged. This, this man has been through a horrible Horrible week. He's been treated. He went to the Sanhedrin and he was treated like dirt. It was commanded from the high priest that he will be struck in the mouth. It's a horrible week. And we know that this week started with him as a free man. And now it ends. And here we are in chapter 23, verse 12. And this man is a prisoner. He's moved from being a free man in Christ to now he's a prisoner of Christ. This may be one of the worst weeks of his life. And after this torturous week of Paul's life, remember what happens in verse 11. Chapter 23. Let's actually go ahead and read verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And there's some sweet things happening here. Worst week of his life. And to cap it off, one night Jesus appears to him. And Paul experiences the sweet presence of Jesus. It says right there in verse 11, the Lord stood by him. Isn't that beautiful? In the worst week of his life, and it says, and the Lord stood by him. The Lord presented himself to him. Sweet presence of Christ. He also experiences the comforting affirmation of Jesus. That Jesus in these words is actually affirming 
Paul, you're doing the right thing and you're doing what I've asked you to do. Look at, look at what it says in verse 11. Take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. I love that phrase. He says, you have testified. You have. You've testified of the facts about me, Jesus, in Jerusalem. That's what you've been doing. You imagine at the end of the worst week of his life, maybe he's thinking, man, did I do the right thing here? You know, brothers and sisters were telling me not to come to Jerusalem and I didn't heed their counsel. I thought God wanted me to come here. Am I doing the right thing? And he gets this comforting affirmation from Christ. You have been testifying to the facts about me in Jerusalem. Take courage. It's a good thing that you've been doing here. The results might not seem apparent. But that's what we're called to, right? We're to testify to the, the facts about Jesus and lead the results up to Jesus. We're to testify, like Paul, that Christ Jesus is the God-man, fully God, fully man that came to rescue, that He died on the cross for sinners, that He took our place at the cross and He was crushed for our iniquities, that He was wounded for our transgressions. We proclaim that. And that He's risen from the dead. He's been seen by our witnesses. Even now, He's still the Savior of the world. We testify to those facts. And leave the results up to Christ. And Jesus gives them a sweet, comforting affirmation here. That's what you've been doing. And then in verse 11, we see that He gets a precious promise from Jesus. He said, just like you've been doing that in Jerusalem, verse 11... So you must also do that in Rome. In other words, Paul, you're going to Rome. And we know that Paul has desired to go to Rome. Before this time period, just a, just a few months before this actually, we see that Paul wrote the letter to the Romans. And in Romans 15, we see Paul saying, I desire to get to Rome. I, for years I've desired to get to Rome to preach the gospel to you also. So Jesus says you're going to Rome. He gives, us, he gives them this precious promise that you're going to Rome. And now we've got Paul is absolutely invincible until he gets there. Why do you say that? Because when Jesus gives a promise, he's faithful to his promise. Worst week of his life, the sweet presence of Jesus, the comforting affirmation, the precious promise. He gets these things from Christ. Now, if this were a good Christian movie, what would come next? If this were a good Christian movie, what would be the next scene here? The darkness would lift, right? He'd get out of jail. Everything would go happily ever after from here on out. The trial would be over. Toyota Tacoma show up in the driveway. Brand new house. Everything would be peachy if this were a good Christian movie. But it's not. It's real life. And so let's read what happens in verses 12 through 15. When it was day, this is just the morning after he was visited by Christ. Verse 12, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who had made this conspiracy. 
They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. It's not a Christian movie. It's real life. And what we see here is an evil conspiracy on Paul's life. He's visited by Christ in the, in, in the night. Next morning, evil conspiracy. A murder plot is being formed against Paul the Apostle. So here's what this passage that we're in today, here's what it doesn't teach. This passage that we're in today does not teach, keep your head up in hard times because things will get better. Just keep your head up. It's all going to get better. This passage today doesn't teach that. We are not promised a rosy life on this side of eternity. But the scripture does invite us that right in the midst of hardship, maybe hardship to the day that you die. That right in the midst of hardship, the scripture invites us to worship the Lord Jesus Christ because he's Jesus, not because your circumstances are great. I want to read this verse to you. Don't flip there, but in Habakkuk 3, verse 17, listen to this. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the field, and there be no herd in the stalls. Horrible circumstance. Yet... Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. So we're invited to worship right in the midst of hardship. Not that it'll go away. I was thinking as I meditated on this, I was thinking about that hymn, How Great Thou Art This Week. You know the hymn, How Great Thou Art? I love this hymn. I have a little bit of a, 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 I got a little something against this, but don't hear me wrong. I love this hymn. Let me tell you what I love about this hymn. I love the refrain. Then sings my soul, my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art. That's worship to God. The reason you exist, the reason you were saved is that your soul was singing, how great thou art. And I love how all four verses it says, uh, when I consider the, the heavens and the things that God has done in the universe, the world thy hand has made, then sings my soul. I glorify God for his creation above. And then it brings it down to the earth, went through the woods. And he says, then sings my soul. As I think about what God has done in creating this earth. I love that about that. And then it goes to Christ. When I think... That God, His Son not sparing, sent Him to die. I scarce can take it in. That Christ, look at the cross, then sings, my soul, I love that. Then it goes to the second coming. When Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation, then sings my soul. So it hits all those periods. I love that about that song. But I will say, I've always had a little bit of beef with the second verse in that song. The second verse in that song, or maybe I should just say that I think something from that song might be missing. 
You know, who am I to say that? But the second verse says, When through the woods and forest glades I wander and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees. And I believe that. And I believe you should hear that and glorify God. But it just sounds too happy clappy to me. Who's just wandering through the forest glades listening to the birds singing sweetly in the trees? Who are you? It just sounds too, too, when everything's great, when I'm hearing, the, you know, when I'm seeing the forest and the sweet birds and the, when everything's great, this seems my soul, something's missing. And I was thinking about this because I heard uh, Alistair beg this week and he's got the same beef with that line. And it's the first time I heard somebody else talking about it. And so he offered another line to balance out that line. So here's a new line to the song. When through the skies... In stormy nights I'm flying and hear the thunder clap about my head. And when I look out and see the lightning's bright flash and realize that I'm about to crash. <laughs> then sings my soul, my Savior God to me, how great thou art. You get that right in the midst of hardship. The hardship is not promised to lit up. You're not promised a rosy life on this side of things. But you are invited to worship Christ for His greatness right in the midst of hardship. And so what happens in verse 12 through 15 that we just read, it tells us that Paul's trial is not over. His trial's not over. There's a secret murder plot against him, according to verse 12. Verse 12 and 13 tell us there's more than 40 men. And listen to how devoted they are to murdering Paul. They're so devoted, they say, we will not eat and we will not drink until that man is dead. And they've got the Sanhedrin on their side. The Supreme Court of the land, the, the most powerful Jews in the land are on their side. They go to these men and they say, hey, here's the plan. Sanhedrin, you guys call Paul in for another investigation. And as they're coming in unexpectedly, me and all my men here, we're going to murder him before he ever gets there. There's a conspiracy. That's what it says in verse 13. It calls it a conspiracy. And here's Paul, and he's helpless. He's in jail. He can't even run. He can't even run for his life because he's, he's in jail. He's being held against his will. Paul's trial is not over. So think about everything that's stacked up against Paul. Forty men absolutely devoted to murdering him. The whole Sanhedrin that gives him his nation wants him dead. And he can do nothing to help himself. Think about what's stacked against this man. And guess what? The only thing he has is just that little promise from Jesus. You're going wrong. What's he going to let control him? The circumstance all around him or that little promise from Jesus? What's going to control him in these moments? That I got this promise from Jesus that isn't fulfilled yet, but I believe in my Savior or everything I see around me. What's he going to let control him? And I think that's a wonderful snapshot of the Christian life. Every Christian in the room, listen to me. Every Christian in the room. 
there's two realities. Two realities. They're just, they're just realities about your life as a Christian. Number one is this. In the world, you will have tribulation. John 16, Or you can say it like this. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14, 22. Ephesians 6, 12 says you have a multitude of enemies with a bullseye on your back. You don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 22, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. These are just realities for the Christian. That's what you have. Number one. But number two, as I said, this is a good picture here, a good snapshot of the Christian life. Number two, you have very great and precious promises. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, it says His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. So everything you need for a, God, a godly life through the knowledge of Him by which have been given to us exceedingly, listen to it, exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you might become partakers of the divine nature. And escape the corruption that is in the world. Did you hear that? Escape the corruption that's in the world. But you've been given great, exceedingly great and precious promises. Do you know these promises to you, Christian, in the Word of God? Do you love them and hold to them? What do you do with these promises? When I even mention precious promises, what enters into your mind right now? Which ones? What promises? And as you think about that, it's a good snapshot of the Christian life. What will control you? The tribulation? Those that hate you? The bullseye on your back? Your enemy? All this stuff? Or those sweet, precious promises from Christ? Like Paul holding Acts 23.11 when Jesus said, you're going to Rome. Even though you got almost an army of men looking to kill you. Now, before we go to that next section, I want us to read. Let me ask you this. How is God? This seems impossible. Okay. He's in prison. These Romans don't necessarily like him. Okay. They're not just, you know, greatly fond of him. Tried to flog him a moment ago. It seems impossible. These men have said, we're not going to eat or drink until he's dead. The whole Sanhedrin's against him. It seems impossible. Here's the question. How is Jesus going to be faithful to his promise that he's going to Rome? How will he be faithful? That, that involves protecting Paul until he gets to Rome. How is Jesus going to protect him? How is he going to be faithful to his promise? Or more generally speaking, you can say it like this. How, how for all of us, for Christians in the room, how does God normally keep his promises or fulfill his promises in our life? How does God normally intervene in our lives? How does he do that? And I think it's the same answer to both of those questions. We see it here in verse 16 through 22. We're going to see divine providence. The way God fulfills these promises and intervenes in our life, divine providence. Look at it in verse 16. 
Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune. For he has something to tell him. So he took him, brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand, going aside and asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire something more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they're ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Now, plain sense of what's going on here. Paul's got a sister. Did you know that? Interesting. And Paul's sister's got a son. Paul's got a nephew. And Paul's got a nephew, it says here, that just so happened, that's the language of divine providence, right? Just so happened, overheard this plot to murder Uncle Paul. And this nephew is a young boy. We know that from uh, the fact that they, they, they just kind of overlooked him and hearing the plot. We know that because it calls him the son of Paul's sister, sister. We know that because three times it calls him young. And we know that because the tribune, it says, took him by the hand and brought him aside privately. So it's this young boy. This young boy overhears the plot. He informs Paul. Then he's sent to the tribune, informs the tribune. And then the conspiracy to kill this man, to kill Paul, is exposed. The murder plot has now been Exposed, And so what we see here is God working through what seems like such natural means, right? We see God just working what seems like just, just natural events. And just, just so happened this happened, just so happened this happened. Divine providence and God is delivering Paul. Divine providence and God is fulfilling His promise. He's keeping His promise and He's going to make it to Rome. Through divine providence. Now I want you to think about how... How could have God protected Paul right here? How, how could have God uh, kept his promise right here? What could God have done? He could have just wiped out 40 men in a moment. Just wiped them out. Killed them all. Just they take their breath away. He could have done that. Supernatural stuff. He could have just caused Paul to just disappear and show up in Rome. He could have given the tribute a dream. God can do anything He wants supernaturally to keep His promise and protect this man. I asked my kids last night, what do y'all think that God could have done? And one of them said, He could have put a force field around Paul. I'm watching too much Star Wars. Another one said, He could have just took a whole piece of the earth off and threw it into space. And it's the part they're standing on, of course. And then, and then my youngest said, he could have made a big truck and run over them. So, <laughs> so they got my point. I want you to get my point that God could do whatever he wants to do to deliver Paul. 
God can fulfill His promises and His will in our lives and in Paul's life in any way He wants to supernaturally. And yet, what does He do? Just so happened, uh, a, a young kid overheard the murder plot. And just so happened, it's Paul's nephew. What? Divine providence. Now, I believe that these sort of things, divine providence, I believe, exalts our God more than even supernatural miracles. You say, what do you mean by that? I want you to think about it like this. To do a supernatural miracle, you have to intervene on some sort of, some sort of element, normal, natural element, some kind of uniformity of nature, and God intervenes and breaks the pattern. But think about when God moves through divine providence. The sovereign God has to be in control of every mind, every thought, every person, every single circumstance, and every moment of time so that everything works together perfectly. That's God. Divine providence is glorious. It's not coincidence. It's not luck. That Paul's nephew overheard this is the sovereign divine hand of God controlling these things to fulfill his promise that Paul, you're going to Rome. Derek Thomas said it like this. God is the orchestrator of circumstances and is able to compose a symphony to his praise from the most distressing conditions. I love that. I want to read it again. God is the orchestrator of circumstances. He is able to compose a symphony to his praise from the most distressing conditions. Isn't that beautiful? And we see it all over the Bible. We see it in the book of Esther. God's name is not even used. And yet we see God ordering events for his divine will to be done. We see it in Joseph's life. Joseph is thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, framed for something he didn't do, thrown into the dungeon. And the whole way through, when we get to the end of the book, we see God meant it for good to bring it about this day to save many people alive. Our God is sovereignly working these things together. He's a God of divine providence. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Settle it in your mind. Since it's all over the Bible, settle it in your mind. This is a way that God works in our lives. I was thinking about things like that this week. And I remember, I may have told you the story before. But I remember asking God, God, please teach my children to pray. Teach them what it's like to pray to you, God. And see you move in faithfulness. Teach my children that, God. And a little bit later, a little girl in our neighborhood is lost. A friend of my daughter, she's lost. They don't know where she's at. Grandma is screaming this girl's name all through the neighborhood. Mom is screaming this girl's name. They can't find this little girl. We hop in the van. The kids are in the back. We're going around everywhere in our van looking for this little girl. And a little bit later, a little voice from a little girl, my daughter in the back says, Daddy, maybe we should pray. I thought, well, that's novel. That's a great idea. Maybe we should pray. So, babe, won't you pray? Very simple prayer. Jesus, please help us find this little girl. We can't do it. We need your help. Amen. Phone rings. Found her. And I thought, Lord, you didn't have to do it like that. You could have found her at any moment in time. And yet right then, I said, God, teach them how to pray. 
and you teach them by your divine will. You do anything you want. You control time, circumstances, everything. That's the God that we serve. And so, if you think about us trusting, if, you, if, if we do this, if we say, okay, we're going to be a people that trust divine providence. We're going to do that. We're going to trust divine providence. How will this change our lives? Man, it kills anxieties. Man, it destroys fears. You get into some hard circumstance and you know my God is in control of every single moment, forming all things according to the pleasure of His will, fulfillment of His promises in my life. You just rest. When we trust in His divine providence, we just rest. I want to read this to you. This is from uh, the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. We don't sing this so much, but, I, but uh, listen to these two lines. About providence. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence. He hides a smiling face. So we ought to trust him for his providence. Now, so as we get ready to move this next section, the last section, we've got the promise given in verse 11. Paul, you're going to Rome. Promise is given. We got a problem arises in verse 12 through 15. And the problem is these men want to kill him. He's got, he's got death on his back. Bulls out on his forehead. He's going down. And then we've got God's providence on display. It just so happens. His nephew overhears it, tells the tribune. And now we're going to see God's extravagant faithfulness. His protection over Paul. In this next section of scripture. So let's read verse 23 through 35. And I want you to see Paul, excuse me, God's extravagant faithfulness to this man. Then he, that's the tribune, called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias to the excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antip Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks 
letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. All right. Now, obviously, God is being faithful to Paul. He gave him a promise you're going to Rome. He's got a bullseye on his back. God delivers him. Obviously, he delivers him here. He removes him from his murders and ruins the murderous plot against him, the conspiracy against him. So obviously, God is being faithful. But the way I said it just a moment ago was extravagant faithfulness. Why do I say extravagant? Go with me. Go with me. Why do I say extravagant faithfulness? And let me mention just a few reasons. Think about this. God just provided 470 soldiers to surround Paul. Infantry, cavalry, and spearmen. That's foot soldiers, horse riding soldiers, and long distance snipers with a spear. He just provided 400 and extravagant fables, 470 soldiers around him. Can you picture that? Maybe there's like, what is there, maybe 200 people here today? Can you imagine 470 soldiers around this man? He offered protection to him. God also provides an immediate trip to Caesarea. It says the third hour of the night, so 9 p.m., right at nighttime, so nobody knows y'all are leaving. There can't be any attacks. I want you soldiers to take Paul to Caesarea. That puts a 70-mile cushion between Paul and his murderers, between Paul and those that want to kill him. God provides a 70-mile cushion. God provides mounts for Paul to ride on. He doesn't even have to walk. He doesn't even have to walk. He's riding in the midst of the other cavalrymen and, and, and making it to Caesarea. He's also provided with a letter from the tribune to the governor. And in the letter it says that he is a Roman citizen. That's good information for them to have about him. And it declares his innocence. He writes, if you read it, he writes in the letter, I see no reason for guilt in this man that deserves, of impri deserves imprisonment or death. Look at what God is providing here. And then God also provides, look at that very last sentence in verse 35. And he, the governor, commanded him, Paul, to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. <laughs> So God provides state protection for Paul in the king's palace. This is extravagant faithfulness. Amazing, extravagant, overwhelming faithfulness from our God. So it's more than just faithfulness. It's extravagant faithfulness. And I hope you see that. Now I want you to imagine how frustrating this had to be to Paul's enemies. Think about how frustrating... These men that gave the vow, I will not eat or drink until that man is dead. But they can't kill him. God uses a little boy to thwart their conspiracy. You know how frustrating this is. 
Can you imagine them one by one, somewhere down the line, they're hungry. One by one, sneaking off and to their shame, grabbing lunch. They failed. It's very frustrating to Paul's enemies. And my hope is that we would see, as we think about this, that we would see, that we would really see God's extravagant faithfulness to His promises in the life of His people. That we would see it in such a way that every one of us here would grab hold of His promises. What comes to your mind? I don't mean just vague, there's some promises somewhere in the Bible. I mean real promises that you can open your Bible and read them and memorize them and hold fast to them and know that everything your God has ever spoken, He always fulfills it. I hope that we'll see His extravagant faithfulness in such a way that you'll take up those promises and make them a daily part of your life, that you hold to them and stand on them, that they guide your life. That they, they affect your anxiety and your fear and whatever it might be because you've got promises. they got 40 men in the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, devoted to killing Paul. Paul's got a promise. And he can rest. He can rest in the promise of God. Now, obviously, we as Christians, we do not have uh, a promise that we're going to make it to Rome. That's not our promise. Okay, so we don't have that promise. But we've got many more in God's Word. The verse I read a moment ago, 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4 says, Exceedingly great and precious promises. Do you know them? you got them in your heart. Can you think of one even now? So we don't have that promise to go to Rome. But let me just give, in closing here, just a couple examples of the promises we do have. And I want to use some really, really common ones. How about John 3.16? God so loved the world that He gave His only Son so that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Do you know what it means? That God in love, we're supposed to perish. We're supposed to die. We're supposed to go to hell. That's what we've earned. But God so loved the world that He sent His only Son. That God the Son came into the world and took on flesh. Became a human. Because God can't die. He has to become human so He can die for you. He sent His only Son. And He went to the cross and died for sinners. Risen from the dead. He's alive right now so that you can trust Him. That whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Now think about the extravagance of God's faithfulness to fulfill that promise in your life. What do you mean, Lord? You mean I'm going to make it to the end? You just said everlasting life. Life that never ends. I can't lose this thing. It's going to the very end. You say, how can you make such a promise? You made a promise that Paul would get to Rome, but you just made me a promise that I'd make it into eternity, one with Christ. It's a greater promise. How will he fulfill it? Think about his extravagant faithfulness. The scripture says here's how he fulfills that promise to every Christian in the room. That the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, comes to indwell you when you believe in him. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says we are, those who believe in Christ, we are sealed 
with the hope promised Holy Spirit until the redemption of the purchased possession. That's extravagant. How are you going to fulfill that promise that I'm with you for all of eternity? I'll come to indwell you. That is absolutely extravagant. What else? Anything else? As if you need anything else? He says, everyone who believes in Christ, you get Jesus as your great high priest. Go read Hebrews chapter 7. Jesus, your great high priest, who always lives to make intercession for you. The scripture says you can be saved to the uttermost. That's to the very end. You can be saved because he always lives to make intercession for you as your great high priest. Listen to the provision here. The extravagant faithfulness. He says that those who believe in Christ have eternal life. He provides the spirit of God within us. And the son of God is our great high priest. That's not even to mention the fact that he gives us a new heart. He takes the old heart out. It gives us a new heart. He changes us, makes us new creations in Christ. Then he takes our record that's full of sin and he wipes the record clean and justifies us. So that the only thing on the record is the righteousness of Jesus. That's what the Father sees. Do you hear the extravagant faithfulness that you who believe in Christ, Christ might have eternal life? Extravagant provision. And I'll give you one more. And I'll give you, I'll give you this one for the sake of showing you how much this frustrates the enemy. Think about how frustrated Paul's enemies must have been. Little boy used to thwart their conspiracy. Well, listen to this promise. Romans 8.28, another common one. Don't hear it like it's common though. Listen to this. It says, for those who love God, God works together all things for good for those who are the called according to His purpose. Are you the called according to His purpose? Do you love God? Is that you? That verse, here's a promise. God works together all things, everything, every circumstance, every situation. He works all of it out if you are His for your good. Do you know how frustrating that is to Satan? To the enemy. That no matter what happens to God's people, God bends it and makes it bow to Him for the good of His people. And so I want to encourage you as you meditate on this passage later to think about God's promises. To be moved to lay hold of them. What are you doing with His promises, brothers and sisters in Christ? What are you doing with them? What are you doing with the Word of God that contains these promises? I want you to think about that. And as you think about God fulfilling these things in your life, life, you need to think about God's great divine providence and the way He's ordering all things and God's extravagant faithfulness. He will not fail His Word. Ever. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for these truths. For this passage of scripture, thank you so much, Lord, for this example of the way that you work in this world. You intervene in providence and you flex your faithfulness, Lord, with extravagance and power and glory. And Lord, I pray that you would cause each one of us, every one of my brothers and sisters in this room, Lord, that you would cause us to take up your promises. 
to hide them in our hearts, to preach them to ourselves, Lord. God, help us to do this and to stand on them in faith. We love you so much, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.